you might be forgiven for thinking that Moses may never climb back down the mountain. He spent the past five episodes channeling information from God who is putting together some fundamental rules that govern human interaction and divine worship. In actual time, this amounts to well over a month. 40 days is a long time for a leader to be absent from his people, and while Moses is up the mountain, there are developments down below. Assuming that they may never see their leader again, the Israelites persuade Aaron to step in. Seeing God as having potentially turned against them and killed Moses, they might easily see their relationship with him as a dead end. With no reference points for any other gods besides those they left behind in Egypt, the Israelites improvise. It's a false move and a misstep that costs them dearly. God has not killed Moses, nor has he abandoned him. And when Moses returns to ground level, both he and God are going to need answers. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 25, Kill Your Brother. For those of you who are grieving the palpable lack of action and yearn for the heady days of cataclysmic floods, sulphur rain and roads through the ocean, help is at hand. The Bible's drama dial that has been turned down to one is about to turn suddenly in a clockwise direction. More of that in a minute. Regulars will know that this is the Bible minus the religion and that I am an advertising creative director with no authority at all to impart wisdom on life, let alone the Bible. I'm just a big fan. The Bible I occasionally quote from is Zondervan's NIV Study Bible UK edition. So come on, something big is about to go down in Sinai. The law giving on Mount Sinai ends with yet another reminder of the importance of keeping one day a week sacred. By keeping Saturday a work-free day, future generations will know that they have a God who sets them apart from all other people. Observing the Sabbath is not a matter of choice either. Anyone who fails to take a day off after six days of work must be killed, God says, and readers of the book of Numbers will learn how this law is later put into action in brutal fashion. God reminds Moses that he created the earth and skies in six days and enjoyed rest and refreshment on day seven. He then hands him two stone tablets on which are written all the laws which he has spoken about so far and which Exodus tells its readers have been inscribed by the finger of God. Suddenly, the Bible springs back into action. While Moses spends 12 chapters receiving laws and design briefs up the mountain, Aaron is attempting to keep spirits up on level ground, where the people assume that both Moses and God have abandoned them. The tribal elders come to Aaron with a plan to create some new gods to lead them, now that the God of Israel appears to have turned his back on them. Unbelievably, given the elaborate week-long ordination and costume which God has planned for his earthly go-between, Aaron immediately sets about breaking one of the Ten Commandments. He collects the people's golden earrings, melts them down and creates an effigy in the shape of a calf. Why a calf? The ancient Egyptians worship Apis, a bull believed to be a go-between for God and his people, and having only recently left Egypt, this appears to be the Israelites' default deity. The elders announce to the rest of the Israelites that this is their God, and it is the calf who has brought them out of Egypt. Not willing to burn his bridges and abandon the worship of God completely, Aaron also builds an altar to God in front of the calf and announces that the next day will be a festival to God. 
following morning, the camp wakes early to offer sacrifices to God. These are described as fellowship offerings, which appear to be thank you gifts to God, where some of the meat is burned, but most of it is eaten by the people who provided the animal for the sacrifice. After the meal, things descend into what Exodus describes as revelry, and while not illegal, the sense is that the celebrations become inappropriate. God alerts Moses to what is going on down below, adding that the people have not only built themselves an idol, but have offered sacrifices to it. After 40 days of instruction, God is prepared to reverse his plans in an instant and destroy every one of the Israelites, who he refers to as stiff-necked. This is a description usually levelled at an animal such as an ox that won't accept direction. Only Moses appears to be exempt from the genocide and God shares his intention to make his family into a successful nation. Moses points out that Israel will become the laughingstock of every neighbouring country, particularly Egypt, if God does this, as it will look like he has only taken his people out of Egypt so that he can kill them in the desert. Moses begs God to moderate his anger and to remember men like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who followed him faithfully. He reminds him of his promise to these men that their descendants would equal the number of stars in the sky and that he would provide them with a new and permanent homeland. God relents, but Moses is furious at how badly his people have let the side down. He begins his descent of the mountain, holding the stone tablets which Exodus explains have been inscribed front and back by God. Suddenly, Joshua re-enters the story. He has possibly been waiting patiently the entire time, just outside of the cloud, and it is this loyalty that earmarks him as a future leader of Israel. Joshua thinks he can hear the sound of war in the camp, but Moses assures him that what he hears is neither victory nor defeat. It is the sound of people singing and dancing around their new golden god. Moses burns with rage. Everything he has spent the last 40 days doing has been for nothing, and as he arrives back on level ground, fury overcomes him. He is still holding the stone tablets in his hands, but the laws are now meaningless as they have already been broken. He smashes them on the rocks at the foot of the mountain before turning his attention to the calf effigy. Readers are told that he burns it, then grinds it down into powder, which he scatters over some water before making the Israelites drink it. Melting the calf removes its physical resemblance to a living creature, and once the metal has cooled, it is probably filed down to create a powder. This is a national crisis, and Moses needs answers from Aaron. He is trying to equate what he knows of his brother and partner with this brazen act of idolatry and can only assume that he has been coerced into breaking the law. Possibly terrified of his brother's rage, Aaron is economical with the truth. He blames the people's proclivity to commit evil and relates how they ordered him to make them new gods to lead them. Aaron is honest about the Israelites' belief that Moses had abandoned them and his collection of gold earrings, but his story is that he simply threw the gold in the fire and out came the calf. Realising that Aaron has allowed things to spiral out of control in his absence, Moses is genuinely concerned that surrounding tribes will see Israel as a laughingstock, a bunch of drunks in the desert. He stands at the entrance to the camp and calls anyone who still believes that God is ultimately in charge to join him. 
the tribe of Levi steps forward, possibly out of family loyalty, because Moses is a Levite. Moses gives the men orders from God. They are each to take a sword and run amok through the camp, killing people indiscriminately, regardless of whether they are their brothers, friends or neighbours. The sense is that the men he chooses are the leaders and elders of the Levites, and so they will be forced to cut down people in their own families. After the slaughter, 3,000 Israelites lie dead, and Moses assures the Levites that for being prepared to kill their own sons and brothers, they have earned a special place in Israel's future. By the next morning, Moses' anger appears to have abated a little, and he announces that he will ascend the mountain in an attempt to make things right with God. He explains to God that the people have committed a heinous sin by fashioning a god out of gold, but his loyalty is still with his people, and he begs God to either forgive them or blot him out of his future plans. This is the first mention in the Bible of what is known as the Book of Life, a kind of good list, naughty list, believed to be kept by God. There is little information in the Bible to illuminate us on exactly what this book is, and it appears to be purely metaphorical, or at best a mental note made by God about each and every person. Throughout the Bible, readers are told that those who persecute God's people can expect to have their names blotted out of the book, but those whose names are in the book are forever protected from the devil's tricks. The book comes into its own in the Psalms and also features prominently in the New Testament book of Revelation, where it appears to contain a roll call of the names of everyone who has ever lived who has not been struck off by Jesus. All who have had the misfortune of having their names removed will be thrown into a lake of fire for the rest of eternity, suggesting how important it is to still be on the list. Back in Exodus, the only blotting out appears to be of the people behind the golden calf God promises him. Moses is to continue leading the people to the promised land and God assures him that his angel will go ahead of them. However, when it's time to punish the rebels, they will indeed be punished, he says. Sure enough, a plague rips through the camp and the Israelites who pressurised Aaron into creating a golden calf are eliminated. Once the plague has subsided and order and discipline have been restored to the camp, God orders Moses and his rabble of Israelites to proceed to their end destination, honouring his promise to Israel's patriarchs. His angel will clear the way for them and drive out the local Canaanite tribes, he says. But then he drops a bombshell. He won't be coming with them. His reason for this is that the Israelites are so stubborn that he is worried that he might destroy them on the way. When they hear that God has effectively abandoned them because of their own reckless actions, the people are mortified. Exodus reports that God orders them to remove their jewellery and leave their treasures at the foot of the mountain. Near Eastern people in Old Testament times are fond of adornment and the ornamentation worn by them will have included collars, metal armbands, bracelets and anklets. These will have been offered up to God, possibly as an act of penance, while he works out what to do with them. Trekking up Mount Sinai to speak with God isn't always practical, especially once the Israelites are on the move. The answer is to erect a meeting place that can be packed up and carried when the people move on. No doubt believing that the camp has been defiled by his compatriots' behaviour, Moses pitches this tent outside its perimeter. He calls this mobile surgery the Tent of Meeting, and anyone who wishes to ask God about anything is to come here. 
Each time Moses heads out to his proto-tabernacle, everyone else stands at the entrance to their own tents to see what happens, possibly anxious that their future is being discussed. Whenever Moses enters the tent, the pillar of cloud remains at the doorway for the whole time that he is inside talking to God. Meanwhile, the people worship at the doors to their own tents, now apparently convinced that God, not a calf made of gold, is in charge of their destiny. According to the writer of Exodus, God speaks to Moses in the tent of meeting face to face, like a friend, which is an astonishing endorsement of a human being by the deity believed to have created the universe. Each time Moses leaves to go back to the camp, his assistant Joshua remains in the tent, guarding it. Once the tabernacle has been constructed though, there is no longer any need for a second tent and it is packed away and put into storage early on in the Israelites' journey to Canaan. The Israelites face the journey to Canaan without God to lead them. It's a huge loss and Moses sees his people as utterly rudderless. While he accepts that he may have been chosen to lead the Israelites, he doesn't really know who God plans to send to help him. This poses a conundrum for Bible experts, as God's angel has already been mentioned, so why would Moses want to know who God means? Possibly he wants to know which angel God will send, but it throws into question again who this mysterious God-like being really is. God has told Moses that he knows him by name, that he is pleased with him, this suggests an intimate degree of knowledge in the way that a ruler might only know the names of a few favoured subjects. Now Moses wants to be initiated into the ways of God so that he can properly know him and continue to keep on his good side. He also wants God to remember that Israel is made up of God's people, perhaps to nudge him towards relenting and sticking with them for the long haul. God promises that what he refers to as his presence will go with the Israelites and that they will eventually find rest, which is reassuring news for Moses. It's also critically important. Moses would sooner that God leave them where they are in the desert if he has no plans to come along with them. After all, how will anyone know that God is pleased with him if he doesn't travel along with them to Canaan, he asks. Without divine protection, Moses sees Israel as no more special than any other nation. Because he is so pleased with Moses, God agrees, and Moses seems the closest thing to a friend that God has had since Abraham. Possibly feeling that this is a bonding moment, Moses asks to see God's face, but doing so is strictly off-limits. Rules are rules, and no one can see God and live. Instead, Moses will be able to see God's goodness, and God will make himself known so that Moses knows that he is close by. God assures him that he is appropriately merciful and compassionate, but just draws a line at letting people see him. However, because of their special relationship, God directs Moses to a cleft in the rocks. When God is about to pass by, he will send Moses to this hideaway and place a hand over his eyes to protect him. Once God has passed, Moses will be able to see his back, which is as up close and personal as this particular friendship gets. The stones on which the laws were written by God have been smashed into pieces. New ones are needed and this involves another 40 days up the mountain for the Israelites' leader. According to Exodus, God tells Moses to take two blank stone tablets and promises to rewrite the laws that were inscribed on them last time. Moses is to return alone to the summit early the next morning and not even the Israelites' animals are to graze anywhere near the mountain. 
Dutifully, Moses chisels some new stones and brings them to God. God is described as appearing in epic fashion, announcing his name from inside the pillar of cloud. He passes in front of Moses, announcing that he is God, that he is compassionate and gracious, that it takes a lot to make him angry, and that he has an abundance of love and fidelity. He is able to love thousands of people at once, he says, while forgiving rebellion and other bad behaviour, which he describes as wickedness and sin. However, guilty people still need to be punished, he tells Moses, and people alive now can expect to still be paying for the misdemeanours of their great-grandparents. Moses bows down and begs God to forgive his stubborn and unruly band of Israelites and to lead them to safety. Optimistically, Moses asks God to see these people as an inheritance rather than what they actually appear to be, a burden. God makes a solemn promise to Moses that he will perform miracles that no nation has ever seen. That way, the rest of the Israelites will properly appreciate the awesome nature of God. God vows to drive out the tribes who currently call Canaan home and warns Moses again of the dangers of making treaties with these people. Any such deals will come back to bite them, he says. God commands him to break down these people's altars, sacred stones and worship poles. Falling for any of these nations' gods is not an option, he says, as he is so jealous that jealous is one of his names. God appears fully aware of the kind of people who currently inhabit Canaan, which is why he wants Moses to have nothing to do with them. He sees any accord between Israel and these nations as a slippery slope that will lead to Israelites sharing meals which have been sacrificed to other gods. Not only that, if they allow their sons to marry Canaanite women, these wives will prostitute themselves to their gods and encourage their husbands to do likewise. And so we're pretty much back where we started, an old man up a mountain receiving rules from God. However, the sense is that this is take two, that everyone has learned their lesson and that they are now all taking this much more seriously than last time. Most people would have lost relatives in the carnage and plague that followed the incident with the golden calf. They know that God means business and that he is not to be messed with. Loyalty is rule one, and anyone who forgets this can expect dramatic consequences. The question is, are the Israelites bold or foolish enough to challenge this? And is the life that God is offering tempting enough to maintain their allegiance? Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com. Oh, and if you have a spare minute, please give us a review on whatever channel you use to listen to this podcast. Your reviews really do help spread the word. Thank you.